Yesterday, I was working on a project at the house. We had no parties. We had uh, no baseball games. Uh, Kaylin went to the, came to the women's gathering yesterday, and I had three boys at my disposal and said, I've got a project to do, and we're all going to do it together. And, and it was just setting a post in, uh, in my yard, uh, digging a hole, putting the post in, dropping in some quick creek. And, and as I did it, we were just talking about, hey, this is what this is going to look like, and how is this going to play out? And uh, I'm trying to prep them. I don't, I don't know if, if you don't have kids, uh, it's really helpful to prep them a lot. <laughs> prep them a lot. Like, keep talking about TV until it gets there. And then when it gets there, keep talking about it. And so we finally get to the spot, and I, I start uh, saying, all right, we're here. We got all the tools we need. We got the quick read. We're ready to go. Uh, now, you go this. You go grab this. You go grab this. Come back. Uh, I say, hey, one of you, can you grab a bucket for me? We need to mix this quick creep. He comes back with his Tonka metal tiny dump truck, and I'm like, yeah, okay, we're going to do that. It's tiny. Uh, last time I did this was with my, my, my dad at my house. He was helping put up a, a massive pole for our, our zip line in our backyard, and he had his wheelbarrow. I don't have a wheelbarrow. And so I'm um, like, I guess it'll work. I guess we'll do it. We'll do it. And I see my neighbor who's always out working, always helpful, and I'm like, hey, hey, Jude, can you go ask him for a bucket? Can you ask him for something to mix this in? And, uh, and, and then he came, and I was like, no, we're almost already done. Let's, and you chose this. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep mixing tiny batches of quickrete seven times instead of one big time and, and make this happen. And we did it. But all to say, as, as I was talking with them, and then later on, I had asked one of them to give me some water while we're doing this. One's holding the post steady while I put the quick read in. We're just trying to clean up, and he gets me water. It's so nice. And then later on at dinner last night, um, we're eating around the table. I finish my water. I'm like, ah, yeah, I needed some water. And my little, my littlest, who had got me water earlier that day, just got up and grabbed it and got me water without asking, without anything. And I was like, it's just so sweet. It's just so sweet. And what I saw in that and what I see in this text this morning is that when you know, which I am not a perfect father, but when you know that your father loves you and you love him, his commands aren't arbitrary or something be done begrudgingly or constantly met with moaning and like, this as well, we have to do this as well. And we see this in this text that we can take, we can talk honestly and frankly about obedience, even though you may have a real hard aversion or visceral reaction to that word, because obedience is not burdensome, because his commands are not burdensome, because we love him. And when you love your father, you joyfully uh, want to do everything that he asks of you. And that's where we're headed. So 1 John 5, I want you to see it with me. 1 John 5, verse 1, first part of verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, I want to remind you that people have left John's church and now are trying to persuade others to uh, join. They're false teachers. There's wolves in sheep clothing. 
And so John keeps warning his folks of these wolves and pointing out how you can discern what looks like sheep, that they're actually wolves, that they're just pretending to be sheep. And so now with this statement, verse 1 of chapter 5, and everything that he said up to this point in this book, we, we can see this clear picture of what these false teachers are advocating for, what they're teaching, what they're trying to persuade people to believe. And it's this, they deny that Jesus is the Messiah. They deny God's son has come in the flesh. They deny that Jesus' death was both real and necessary. And so while they claim to be born of God, if they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the spirit-anointed Messiah, they are not born of God. You, you can't deny the son of God and claim you're a child of God. This is what he's getting at. Because being born of God is initiated by the Father, affected by the Spirit, and in conjunction with our faith in Jesus. That's why Jesus, in John chapter 3, which I assume John is picking up again his, uh, his master's, his friend's words, you must be born again. And what does that look like? Faith in Jesus. You will not be born again by anything else. There's no other way to the Father. You can't deny the Son and say you have the Father. And then he says, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. Now, if you're with us five years ago when we walked through the book of John, or if you've ever read the book of John, you can maybe start thinking, oh, what he's saying or what he's arguing here is that if you love the Father, then you love the Son of the Father. But that's not what he's getting at. He's saying, if you love the Father, then you love everyone who's been born of him, meaning his children, meaning our fellow brothers and sisters. But then he makes a surprising argument in verse 2. He says, this is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Excuse me. I've got to get rid of that peppermint. Joel, I'm real lispy when I have a peppermint in my mouth. Sorry. All right. So this argument is surprising because multiple times up to this point, John has stated people's claim to love God are to be tested by the presence or absence of love for fellow believers in their lives. But here he does the reverse. He says that whether or not people love the children of God can be determined by their presence, the presence or absence of their love for God and obedience to God's commands. And it seems like a circular argument but it's fine because these two things can't exist apart from one another. You can't love God and keep his commands without loving his children. And you can't love his children without loving God and keeping his commands. I mean, consider the, the Ten Commandments. The first four direct our love for God, and then the remaining six instruct us in how to love our neighbors, how to love one another. These two loves cannot be separated. Back to 1 John 4. He says, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. 
Now, that's confrontational, right? Because John's going to be black and white on some of these things. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sisters. I mean, this is just like if you love and respect a person, you're going to love and respect that person's child. If you love the father, you will love his children. So to grow in godliness is to keep growing in our love for what God loves. And what does the father love? His children. That's what he loves. And so what's to be formed in godliness and grow in, in godliness is to love what the father loves. And he loves his children. So we love his children. We love one another. If you go back to chapter 4, you can be confident, assured, knowing that he loves you. Or back to what he said last week, to know and believe that the Father loves you. How can you definitively stand on the Father's love for you? Well, you go back to what he said in chapter 4, and he said, Christ Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Messiah, the Son of God, came to die for our sins, to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, the one that takes the Father's wrath for all of our sins, and then we receive the, the gracious smile of the Father. We're loved. We're loved tenderly by the Father, and his love for us excites our love for him and excites our love for his children. So he's saying, our love for others is measured by keeping God's commands. And our love for God is expressed in keeping God's commands. Verse 3 again, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. The observable Mark of love for God is obedience to his commands. If you love God, you will keep his commands. Now, to be clear, not perfectly, right? Go back to chapter one. You're going to sin. If you say you have no sin, if you say you never disobeyed the Father, you're saying you're not going to disobey the Father, then you're a liar, you're a deceiver. But at the deep part of our hearts and then growing more and more in a pattern and rhythm of our lives, we love God and obey his commands. The objection I think you feel, the pushback I think you may feel internally is this, that you feel as if his commands and his character are separate, but they're not. His commands come from his character, which means his commands are not arbitrary. Not arbitrary. He loves us and knows the best way to live, and we trust him, and we're so infatuated with him that we'll do whatever he says. You're intoxicated by his love for you, and you're led by the Spirit to treasure God supremely. The other objection I feel in us and I've seen in, in us is that, that we may have different backgrounds and some of us have a background that's pretty moralistic, potentially 
legalistic. And so when the gospel frees us from trying to earn salvation, and rather we believe Christ has finished the work, then there's just great relief and joy, right? When you have that gospel awakening that this is not me doing to earn. This is actually Christ has earned the Father's favor for me, has secured it, has expressed it, has displayed it. We feel great relief and joy. But, but what can happen is that we swing from any effort, any obedience, and we coast, assuming that we aren't called to anything. And John's like, no. You can't go down that ditch. You can't swing the pendulum that way. Because what we do is we essentially just swing from moralism, legalism, to licentiousness, to laziness, to thinking grace means we have a free license to do whatever we want. And we use our justification as a justification to passivity and disobedience. But then there's others of us that come more from a liberal background, and when God's holiness shines on our souls, we're amazed at the gospel of Christ, that he's rescued us from the wrath that we deserve for our heinous sin. So in taking holiness seriously now, we work really hard to obey, really hard to obey, but often by our own effort. And John is just helping us navigate the path of following Jesus, that it's, it's this direction and you don't have to fall in this ditch of laziness and disobedience and you also don't have to fall in this ditch of obedience by your own effort. There's a third way. We don't have to swing from side to side. We don't have to swing from laziness to self-righteousness. There's a third way and it's seen and what both of these ditches are rooted in, they've divorced obedience from the good news of the Father's love for us. Paul will say it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.10, which won't be on the screen, but he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I took obedience seriously. I worked hard for Jesus. I, I did this. I, I wanted to grow and, and follow him and say yes to everything that he uh, called me to and commanded me to do, but it's not me. It's by the grace of God. Or as he says in Colossians 1, 29, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. The third way is grace-empowered effort, that we obey, we work hard by God's grace. We strive with his strength. We strive fueled by the gospel, that the gospel fuels us to love others and keep God's commands. And that ditch, though, that if, if we're going to take this serious of obedience because we love him, then you've got to know that in this, this can't be our effort alone. Self-empowered effort looks like this. I'm working for God's favor. I'm trying to obey to earn God's love. And that's not the path. 
And that gets twisted in our sanctification, and we drift into these things, but this is the path. The path is grace-empowered effort, and that looks like I'm working with God's favor and with God's help. Because of Jesus, I am fully accepted by God. The Father is unchangeably for me because of Jesus. Your obedience doesn't buy the Father's love. He set his love on you. Your obedience doesn't buy you his love. Your obedience displays your love for the Father. That's what John is saying. And so then the mindset mindset switches in us. And and I'm praying that maybe for us in this room it switches. Or we're reminded and refreshed and redirected that I don't have to obey I get to obey. My father, who I love so much, I get to obey him. I get to follow him. I get to join him on what does it look like to live the life that he has created and has said, this is what it looks like to live in this world as my children. We get to obey him, which makes all the sense in the world when it comes to this next statement. The last of verse 3, he says, and his commands are not a burden. His commands are not a burden. His commands are not burdensome. Where Jesus can say, follow me, for my yoke is light. My path, my commands, my way is not burdensome. And I'm going to keep saying this because we think so often they are. We've reacted to authority. We've reacted to the, the thought of obedience. Maybe with that, that kind of punk rock rattle, radical individualism that says, uh-uh. Now, whether burdensome, I want to do this, and he keeps telling me to do this. I don't want to do that. That sounds hard and difficult and terrible. It's too much. I'll, I'll maybe obey, obey these things that I feel like I can do that are pretty easy. I mean, that, that's why legalism is so inviting. Why? Because you have three clear rules, and if you don't disobey them, you're pretty good. It's like, well, yeah, they're all external rules that... Many people that have a decent, like, strong will can't obey. So it's very attractive. It's like, oh, okay, I can know that. I'm in good stand with God because I have this low bar of these three rules. I won't get drunk. I won't watch R-rated movies, and I I will stay away from tobacco. Like, I'm not going to do these things. And if I don't do these things, then, you know, I think God loves me, and everything's okay. I've earned his favor by knocking off those three points of a checklist. His commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's a bookend statement from verse 1 to verse 5. He said it in 1. He's going to bookend this argument here in verse 5 and say his commands are not burdensome. Why? Because we've conquered the world through our faith in Jesus. They're not burdensome. But how does that work itself out? 
Well, John is saying that in the new birth, when we've been born of God, we've been given a new nature, that we're a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. All things are, you're new, a new nature with new affections, with new passions, with new treasures, with new values, because I now love God instead of hating him, I treasure and value him above everything and everyone else. And because I treasure him and love him and value him, I delight in obeying him. I find his commands not to be a burden, but a blessing. They're not drudgery, but a delight. John Piper stated it this way, what you desire to do with your whole heart is not burdensome to do. My heart desires to love and obey my Lord. Now, <clears throat> to make that very clear that they're not burdensome, don't they feel burdensome sometimes? To be honest, don't they feel burdensome? They feel like he's telling us to do something and he's putting not a light yoke, but he's putting a 300-pound yoke on our necks and it just feels burdensome and heavy and like too much. Like the trainer at your gym was like, hey, how are you doing? You can do some squats. Yeah, I'll throw four uh, 45s on both sides. You got it. And you're like, this is my first day. I just showed up. I don't think that this is this where we start. Like this, that's how we feel sometimes. Right? Do you feel like God's commands are burdensome sometimes? Because if not, I'll stop talking about it. And I'll, I've already talked to myself about it, so I don't need to. But I think it's part of the life of, of following Jesus that at times we feel like his commands are burdensome. But we've looked back a lot of 1 John, what we've covered. Uh, I think I've hit multiple verses in the first four chapters. But I'm going to kind of unplug today the M. Night Shyamalan twist at the ending. Because this is what John does. I, I, we spent 52 sermons on the book, the Gospel of John, at the very beginning. And I really enjoyed his writing, loved what the Spirit says to us through the Gospel of John. But how he writes is that he writes almost the whole thing and then tells you the purpose at the end. And then you hit that purpose, and then you read it again, and you go, yeah, that's his purpose. I've told people in the past that when I was preaching the book of John, I felt like every application, every Sunday was the purpose statement. Because every story is linked to that, because that's his goal. And this is what he said in John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose. That's why he wrote. Now, with that logic, go to the end of 1 John. The last word in 1 John is this. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And I've taken classes and I've read things and I've, I've debated some of this with people. I think that's the purpose statement of the book. And it, then after you read it, makes sense of everything he said up to this point. 
So if you go to the Gospel of John, the purpose statement, he's saying non-believers believe in Jesus and have life. So if that's you, you must be born again. There's no other way to know and enjoy the Father than through the Son. And so you must believe and you have life. But then with this, John in 1 John, he's speaking to the believers and saying, guard yourselves from idols and love God instead of idols and love others because you love God instead of idols. The false teachers that John is addressing have given themselves over to an idol. They're bowing down to a false God. They may call him God, but it's a God of their imagination, not the God revealed in the scriptures and not the God revealed by Jesus. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. So I think so often we feel that God's commands are burdensome because we're more infatuated with another God than the God who loves us. When your heart is infatuated with, is controlled by, is just committed to in love, okay, love, which means commitment and affections and sacrificial action. If you're loving a false God, then the actual God who loves you and is for you tells you something to do and it contradicts your idol, then it's like, that feels burdensome. That feels heavy. That feels gross. That goes against what I really want in this. That's too heavy for me. If God is telling us that his commands are not burdensome, then we can't keep trying to wrestle with, are they or are they not from him? We have to wrestle with what is in us that makes us feel like they're so burdensome. And one of the ways it is, is that we've given ourselves, we've volunteered for slavery to idolatry, whether that be control or approval uh, or comfort. I mean, think about it. If, if, if your idol on Tuesday morning that you're worshiping, to be clear, you maybe think I'm talking about worship as corporate gathering right now. That's not what I'm talking. I'm not saying that next Sunday you, you go to a church that talks about God, but it's not the God of the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. Or a completely different God. Or, or you go to a mosque, or you find some small house church that worships the God of Marduk from the Babylonian, Babylonian creation narrative. I don't know. That's not what I'm talking about, though. What I'm talking about is that we weren't created to worship. We were created worshiping. The question is, what are you worshiping? that you are incessantly pouring out adoration and affection and commitment and sacrificial action to something. And if it's not Jesus, it's an idol. And when you're in that state, Jesus' yoke feels heavy and burdensome. His commands feel like, I can't do this. This is, this is not good for me. This isn't right. I, I will actually say, and 
most likely find a God that agrees with me so that I can keep doing what I want, not submit to the Father who loves me and is for me and has called me to love him and obey him. Now, if you think about it as idolatry, then I want you to think about what does it look like when you are worshiping Jesus and enjoying God? And I'll tell you what it looks like. Nope, I'll read what it looks like from God himself. Because in the Psalms, we repeatedly find the joyful testimonies of God's children as they sing of their joy in doing the will of God. Do you hear what I'm saying? Can you black that out real quick? When I'm trying to say something and everyone's eyes go up, I'm like, uh-uh, nope, because I'm trying to make this point. You're going to hear me, not read, okay? <laughs> In the Psalms, we repeatedly find the joyful testimonies of God's children as they sing of what? Not, not you know, Led Zeppelin stuff, drugs, the other thing, and rock and roll, right? Got a lot of kids in here. We love you, okay? We'll let your parents tell you about that when you're ready and when they give you their first, your first Led Zeppelin CD. But these people, these people sing of their joy in doing the will of the Lord and obeying his commands. They sing about it. They delight in it. This is what it says. This song, I'm, I, I could give you 15. Here's a few. Psalm 1 says this, How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. Think about this. Think about singing this next Sunday, Psalm 48. I delight to do your will, my God. Your instruction lives within me. I want us to pick up a few of these phrases, throw a melody on them, and start singing them on Sundays. Because this is what God's people since then have been doing. Have been singing of their delight in doing God's commands. Because it's not burdensome, it's a joy because we're so infatuated with the Father, we'll say yes to anything he tells us. Not done. Psalm 112. Hallelujah. Sometimes we put asterisks on our screens to clarify archaic or words that aren't in our vocabulary. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. So when you hear Pastor Rick say hallelujah and shout it on Sunday mornings, that's what he's saying. He said, yes, praise the Lord. So he's saying, praise the Lord. Happy is the man who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. Or think about singing this, Psalm 119. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as, as, much as in all riches. Or 143, trouble and distress have overtaken me, but your commands are my delight. Can you imagine what if in your, your suffering, what if in your dark moments that you didn't toss out God's commands and say, this has been so rough, I'm just going to find anything that will relieve my pressure, that will relieve my suffering, that will give me some 
I know it's momentary. I don't care if it's momentary. I want that immediate momentary satisfaction because my suffering. What if we didn't do that? But in our suffering, we sing, your commands are my delight. That in all our joys, Jesus is better. And in all our suffering, Jesus is enough that we would sing through the dark night of our souls and rejoice in your commands are beautiful and I want to say yes to everything. Mm. Last one, 147. We're going to make this into a bridge. I delight in your commands, which I love. Now, that's a problem if you've divorced his commands from his character. It feels like, oh, I'm just loving these commands, I'm loving the law, I'm loving, but if you know his commands flow out of his character and always are good for you, there's no command from the Lord that is bad for you. There are commands for me to my kids that are bad for them or are birthed out of my selfish idolatry that wants them to do what I expect all the time with no complaining, no fighting, and then I just tell them things to do and make it serious when it's not really a thing I need to say. It may be a quirk, it may be something I don't even need to address. That's me as a sinful dad, that's not our Holy Father. He's never told you, given you, called you to anything that is not the best for you. I delight in your commands, which I love. Because I love you, so everything you say I love. You should feel that a bit. You should feel that a bit, because we, we live in... in in a, a climate, in a culture that, that we want to be gracious and kind, express the fruit of the Spirit, to, to not only have gospel doctrine, but have a gospel culture. But there's things that we're going to have to say and things that we're going to stand on that, that people are going to hate, that are going to think are crazy, gross, a maligning of our human souls. And we're going to say, I hear you, but I love him. And everything he says, I love. We love God our Father and delight to keep his commands because we're his children. And then we go back to chapter 3 and say, yes, we're not only children, we're also conquerors. That's our identity. That's what he gets into when he starts talking about this victory Because everyone who is born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. We're victorious. Jesus' victory is ours. It's secured. And as his disciples, not only do we have this definitive victory in him where we know the final outcome because he's told us what it's going to look like when we see him face to face and he puts the world to rights and, and everything is beautiful and good and everything sad melts away. And also, 
we have ongoing victory. This conquering he's talking about is this ongoing victory, this conquering over false teaching and the world's value systems. The world here, again, in John's writing, is most often not the people of the world. It's the world's value system and idols in opposition to the God of the world. And so we overcome this. And if you think, well, what, what, what does the world look like? He talked about it in chapter 2. Is it, what, what's, what's a big piece of the world's value systems? It's the lust of the flesh, it's the lust of the eyes, and it's the pride of life. And he's saying, in conquering, we conquer, we overcome, we're victorious over our sinful desires by our faith in Jesus. Again, John Piper says it this way, faith sees that Jesus is better. That is why faith conquers the world. The world held us in bondage by the power of its desires, but now our eyes have been opened by the new birth to see the superior desirability of Jesus, that Jesus is better than the desires of the flesh, and Jesus is better than the desires of the eyes, and Jesus is better than the riches that strangle us with greed and pride. So because he first loved us, because he uh, initiated salvation and gave up his son to win us, to rescue us, to save us because he first loved us. We're going to love him and obey his commands, his unburdensome commands. That's not a word, but we're going to do that because they're not a burden. And we're going to continue to grow and be so infatuated with God that we say yes to everything he tells us. And when we sin and we feel like his, uh, his commands are burdensome, maybe because of our idolatry, then what do we do? We, we practice the means of grace, of repentance, because you're always worshiping. You're always worshiping. And so if this in ceasing pouring out of commitment and affections and sacrificial action is going out of you and it's been misappropriated and been put on someone or something that doesn't love you and hasn't died for you, then we repent and turn from it and see again Jesus on the cross, on our behalf, dying in our place, loving us. And we say, you're better. You're better. You're better. And so the gospel then again is preached to our souls, is received in our souls, and we can again say, I love you so much because you love me, and yes, I want to say yes to everything, and I'm gonna try by your grace to say yes to everything you tell me, to the glory of God. Father, this is to your glory, and I pray that you'd work this in our hearts. I pray for the gift of conviction from your spirit that would lead us out of idolatry, that would turn us, that would convict us and say so sweetly to us that this idol is trash, but I'm your supreme treasure. 
and that we would turn to you today. And then listen to you at the end of 1 John 5 and guard ourselves from idols moving forward. Meaning, we feast on your word, delighting in you. We commune with you in prayer. We do whatever we can to stir up our affections for you. And guard ourselves from idols by supremely treasuring you. Lord, I pray you keep working this. I pray, and I am so confident because you told us you're going to do it. Would you continue to grow in us more and more and more an absence of sin, an absence of idolatry, and grow more and more in us presence of love? The love for you, the love for you that keeps your commands, the love for you that loves our brothers and sisters. Our love for you that that gets expressed in loving our city and serving our city. We pray this in Jesus' name.